Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And today we here at the show are celebrating because guess what's coming up, dear listeners? Spring. Yep, the first day of spring is March 20th. And here at MCHQ, we are pretty excited about that fact. So we're calling today's show Spring Fling and bringing you stories about getting outdoors, getting our hands dirty, getting some sun, even a bit of all three. We'll get a jump on the growing season with a guy who's been gardening since he was just a sprout. I have this gardener's haze where I see something really interesting and I have to get it. And then I get it and then I say, oh no, what do I do with it now? We'll head out on a local waterway to study a vanishing fish. This is a female, very swollen belly there, so she is not spawned yet. And we'll travel to Jamaica without leaving the D.C. region with a new children's show featuring the songs of Bob Marley. A children's musical using Bob Marley music? I thought, are you out of your mind? But first, since we're talking about spring, in less than a week, the district will be launching the big blowout celebration of the season. The National Cherry Blossom Festival, commemorating the 3,000 cherry trees the mayor of Tokyo gave to Washington, D.C. back in 1912. From March 20th through April 14th, visitors will encounter all sorts of cherry-related cheer, from cherry-inspired foods to cherry blossom yoga. Now, traditionally, you might associate D.C.'s infamous cherry blossoms with the Tidal Basin. After all, that's where you'll find more than 3,700 Yoshino cherry trees, with their delicate pink-white blossoms surrounding the 107-acre reservoir. But the Tidal Basin isn't the only place to see flowering cherries this season. Among other spots in town, the U.S. National Arboretum has about 1,600 cherry trees, representing around 450 varieties. And starting this Monday, the Arboretum is offering a self-guided tour of those trees. It's called Beyond the Tidal Basin, introducing other great flowering cherry trees. I recently met up with Margaret Pooler, who's been breeding plants at the Arboretum for 16 years, and she gave me a sneak preview of some of the tour's sites. So exactly what kind of flowering cherry is this? This tree is an Okami cherry tree, and this one is special because it's one of the earliest blooming ones that we have. You can see today it's not even mid-March, and it's almost in full bloom now. Everything else is still brown, but here they are giving us a hint that spring is just around the corner. Can you describe this shade of pink? It's, I, I, I'm not sure really how to describe it. Well, the Okami and some of the other ones are a kind of a darker pink than what we're used to seeing in, the, like, for example, the Tidal Basin cherries. And part of that is because um, one of their parents, it's a species called Prunus campanulata, the Taiwan cherry, that has a really dark, deep pink. Should we move on to the next, next yeah. spot? So which tree are we looking at now? So this tree is kind of an interesting one. It's called Autumnalis rosea, and it's special because it blooms in the spring with all the rest of the flowering cherries, and you can see it's got lots and lots of flower buds on it right now. They're still pretty tight because it's not an early one. But what's neat about it is that it also flowers in the fall. Um, Not nearly as big of a bloom as the spring bloom, but um, it does give a a pretty decent fall display. So it's kind of nice. One year, I think it was in full bloom at Thanksgiving. So visitors who happened to come by here then got to see a Thanksgiving flowering cherry. Not something you'd expect. Definitely not. Once it does bloom, what do the blossoms look like? Um, The blossoms are a kind of light pink, whitish with pink tinge, semi-double. That means they have 
somewhere around maybe 20 petals per flower as opposed to the true doubles, which are some of the, like the Kwanzan that you see, the popular Kwanzan cherry. That's a true double where it's got, you know, upwards of 25 or more petals per flower versus the single blooms, which are only five petals. Yoshino cherries are a good example of that. I suspect that when most people or when a lot of people think about flowering cherries, they have one particular image in their head. So this is, this is just amazing for me to hear about and see so many different varieties. It is. It's, it's pretty amazing. I think if you walk by the research collection, which is also one of our stops on the tour, you really can see all in one place that diversity of flowering cherries because any time during the month and a half that we have this tour going on, you'll see things that have either they're just coming into bloom, things are in full bloom that have finished bloom and are already starting to set seed. So you'll see every stage of bloom, plus different habits, everything from short shrubby plants to tall tree types, different colors from white to the deep pink that we talked about. So yeah, I think this is a great way to just really come to appreciate all that flowering cherries have. Okay, well, I'll show you one more. It's a weeping cherry that when you come to the Arboretum, you really can't miss if it's in full bloom because everyone's going to be flocked around it. So kind of like a weeping willow, but with the cherry blossoms? Exactly, exactly. All right, let's go. Okay, there aren't any blossoms on these yet, but they are stunning. Yeah, even without being in bloom, even when all you see are branches, just the silhouette of these trees are absolutely amazing. Um, When they're in full bloom, they're just beautiful white cascading petals that when you're standing under there, you know, you can imagine the whole, the effect, and a few blossoms fall around your head, and it really is kind of magical. What's the tree's official name? Um, Officially, it's Prunus subertella pendula. Um, meaning pendulous, the weeping. So, Margaret, given that you've been working with the cherry trees for so long here at the Arboretum, what would you say is the significance of the cherry tree to D.C.? Well, I think the cherry trees are special, especially in Washington, D.C., for a couple reasons. Um, One, I think they're so constant and predictable. So, in Washington, you know, for example, this year we've got sequestration and we have continuing resolutions and all these things that no one knows what's going to happen, but we do know those cherry trees are going to bloom no matter what. So I think that's kind of a comfort to a lot of us. And I think also in D.C., you know, we tend to get so busy and so overscheduled and go, go, go that the cherries, you know, they're only in bloom for a week or maybe 10 days. And so it kind of forces you to just pause, take a break from all that and stop and enjoy them because they're not going to be there very long. That was Margaret Pooler of the U.S. National Arboretum. You can check out the self-guided tour beyond the Tidal Basin, introducing other great flowering cherry trees starting this Monday. For more information and to see photos of many varieties of flowering cherries, visit our website, metroconnection.org. They say it's spring Those bells that I can hear ringing It may be spring But when the robin stops singing You're what I'm clinging to Though they say it's spring It's you Okay, so we're going to stay on the subject of plants for this next story Only we're going to head inside That's the primary domain of Kenneth Moore, a Washingtonian who's dubbed himself the indoor gardener. And as Emily Berman recently found out, that title is pretty spot on. Kenneth Moore's first apartment in the district was a studio in Mount Pleasant. He picked it because of all the windows. 
It would be the perfect place for a garden. I was growing lettuce. I was growing beans and peppers. And I had nine-foot-tall tomato plants. I tried eggplant, but that just, that, that did not work so well. He nailed two-by-fours into a rectangle, filled it with rocks and soil, then planted stalks of corn, which wasn't really a great idea. And I would come home and my furniture would be covered in yellow corn pollen. And sweet potatoes? Turns out they grow really fast. They are so vigorous that I could not untwine them from my blinds. (laughs) He had dozens and dozens of plants growing, and out of all of it? I got enough tomatoes and peppers that I made pasta sauce twice to have one bowl of pasta. And I got two baby ears of corn. That's it. And you'd think that's kind of disappointing for months of hard work and basically turning your apartment into a garden. But this was just the most recent incident in a long line of underperforming gardens. The first was when he was four years old. We lived in a townhouse in Laurel, and my father built a garden box out of two-by-fours. I was the one who decided when to plant things and what to plant. My parents just let me go to town. He got the idea to garden from a book called Every Seed is a Promise, which he loved. I read that all the time. I made my mom read it every night. I learned how to read so I could read that book myself. Moore's dream was to be a farmer. I had dreams of bringing two carrots and one cucumber to the grocery store so that they could sell it. And I thought I would get rich with those two carrots and one cucumber. By the time he got to high school, his interest in plants had broadened. He studied biology in college, but found that his idea of getting rich by farming probably wasn't going to bear fruit. So he works in communications, and when he's not working, he's gardening. If you'd like to put two or three seeds in each. Two or three. Two or three, yeah. We're on the floor of his apartment planting super frying peppers. This is going to be painfully obvious for me to say, but these look like pepper seeds. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Like seeds you find in a red pepper. Exactly. Okay. We finish planting and Moore sets the tray of pots onto one of his plant shelves. It's a six-foot-tall bookshelf with grow lights, misters, and plants top to bottom. There's even a fish tank full of orchids. It's only a 20-gallon fish tank, so I can't fit a ton in there. But there's about 45 plants. There are plants on his windowsills and planting gear neatly stacked up the walls of his basement apartment. Altogether, Moore estimates he has more than 150 plants and an emotional connection to each of them. Such a strong connection, in fact, that when he got a job offer in 2010 to move to Saudi Arabia... The plants came with him. I brought about 100 plants to Saudi Arabia in my gym bag. He had passed all the USDA inspections to take plant cuttings out of the country. But on his way back, he kind of skipped that part. The USDA knocked on my door and they asked if they could come in. And I said, yeah, yes, of course. (laughs) And I'm like terrified and came and confiscated my plants. He didn't have any illegal plants, per se, but because they hadn't been inspected, they needed to be burned. Later that year, the feds returned to his apartment after he thought he was buying seeds from Indiana. Turns out, they were from India. But it's all just an experiment, Moore says. It's something to try. It's something to figure out how to do and how all those things that I use in the day-to-day world are made. Even with a remarkably high kill rate, which on the whole is about 50 percent, Moore says he's entering this spring planting season ready to learn new lessons and make new mistakes. I'm Emily Berman. 
To see Kenneth Moore's picks for his favorite seed stores and garden shops in the region, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, an ecological mystery in our local rivers. The two rivers that are doing really poorly are the Severn and South Rivers right near Annapolis. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. With the first day of spring just around the corner, we're calling this week's show Spring Fling. So this hour, we're getting out and about and exploring all the springtime goodness the D.C. area has to offer. Earlier in the show, we moved beyond the Tidal Basin and checked out some of D.C.'s other cherry trees. And in just a bit, we'll hear about the yellow perch whose spring spawning numbers have been going down. First, though, it wouldn't be spring in D.C. without the annual global culinary showdown, the Embassy Chef Challenge. The 2013 challenge took place Thursday night, and the winner was crowned by the 2012 champion, 35-year-old chef Victor Marigny from the Embassy of Hungary. A few days before Victor stepped down from his throne, I met up with him in the embassy kitchen for a little bit of conversing and a little bit of cooking. I was joined by Missy Frederick of Eater DC, the local food blog with which we produce our regular series, Eating in the Embassy. Victor has been cooking in the U.S. for four years now, and he says he has one primary goal when whipping up dishes for the ambassador and his guests. Usually the people thinking about Hungarian cuisine, it's uh, fatty, spicy, always pork inside. And that's my, my job. Uh, show to the people is totally different. We have uh, beautiful lakes, beautiful freshwater fish. We have four seasons in Hungary, so always changing the ingredients. Also different area in the countries with different cooking methods. Can you give some examples of traditional dishes from different parts of the country? For example, two days ago I made the goulash soup. Usually the inside the goulash soup a pasta like uh, dumplings and the cubes cooked meat. Are there other foods that you grew up eating that when you make them here you, you alter them a little bit? I like to follow my, my grandmother's uh, dessert. It's it's really sweet part from the childhood. It's really famous, the, the strudel in our country. And you can play with the stuffing to the strudels here. So, for example, two days ago also I made apple strudel, but I put inside some uh, black poppy seeds. So it's, it's made totally different way, a bit healthier way, and keep the traditional way also. Here in Washington, you've been here, you said, four years. Mm -hmm. Are there places you can go to buy special ingredients or restaurants where you can get real Hungarian dishes? To find the Hungarian ingredients in D.C., that's the biggest challenge than the Embassy Chef Challenge. Uh, Actually, four or five locations I need to visit uh, after I find everything. Here in D.C. you can find uh, Hungarian restaurants or, or typical Hungarian dishes. Some Central European restaurant try to do that, but they follow their way, their cooking method. I can tell them if they want. 
<laughs> what about beverages? Beverages, uh, we will make our wines. So special wines coming from Hungary. And the palinka, palinka, it's real, real nice kind of spirit. It's made from uh, fresh fruits. You can find uh, 15 or 20 type. A bit strong, but it's okay. I was in Budapest last year and I had prune and I had pear. And which one do you like? I think I like the pear a little more. I don't know. They were both delicious. Strong. Very yeah, for strong. Me, for me, the pear, pear it's, it's working more than the prawns. Should we start cooking or do you, are there other things you want? I think we can start cooking. Yeah. We can start cooking. Beautiful. Yeah. So what we will cook today, like a dessert, palacinta. It's a Hungarian pancake. It's totally different than the American pancake. The Hungarian pancake is really thinning. The ingredients for the pancake, it's flour, milk, egg, and some soda water. So we just put the flour inside to the bowl, some egg. We need some salt. That will be a dessert, but uh, some, some small amount of salt. Egg inside. I just put now uh, milk. Stir it well. And now the soda water. So it's not the least bit lumpy. It's, it's, yeah, it's very liquid. Yeah, that's why the pancake is so thinny. Couple of seconds to heat it up the pans, and we use usually olive oil or corn oil or vegetable oil. The traditional way they use a pork fat, but here in the embassy, what we really would like when the guest finishing don't feel the oh I am totally I can move and <laughs> I need to sleep a couple hours. <laughs> so I just brush with oil. And if you use this pancake to do another different way, to the dessert, and if we put walnut cream, cooked walnut cream inside, and cover with chocolate sauce, that's our famous gundel pancake. And in the restaurant, they put a palinka on the top and flame it. So when it's arrived to the guest, the pancake, it's with a nice blue flames, and also with the palinka flavors around. Oh, it's so good. So a couple of can pancakes ready. Would you like to try the yeah. pancake? The sour cherry compote, and I just cook with uh, sugar and cinnamon and vanilla, and a small amount of powdered sugar on the top. You need to be make uh, elegant because the guests eat first with their eyes, and af after the second, they will taste it. That was Chef Victor Marinyi of the Embassy of Hungary. To see photos of the chef at work, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And stay tuned, because this summer's Smithsonian Folklife Festival is all about Hungarian heritage. So each day on the National Mall, Victor and his crew will be serving up 10,000 portions of Hungarian food. That's a whole lot of goulash. You can find more information about that big event on metroconnection.org, too.
Chef Marini mentioned the fish that abound in Hungary. And this next story is about fish too. Though these fish aren't quite in abundance. Not anymore anyway. In a few western tributaries of the Chesapeake Bay, the yellow perches springtime spawning isn't quite going as planned. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story. It's just after 9 o'clock in the morning on the South River just outside of Annapolis, Maryland. U.S. fish and wildlife biologists are tossing dozens of fish back into the water. That's a juvenile. The batch, which was caught in nets left overnight in the shallows, is mostly made up of catfish and white perch. That's why they're going back into the river. Fred Pinckney, the senior member of the team, is looking for yellow perch, stouter fish in the bass family that can grow 10 inches long. Pinckney finally spots a female in the bottom of the bucket. The greenish-yellow coloring and the dark vertical striping is unmistakable. This is a female, very swollen belly there. So she has not spawned yet. You can see how wide her belly is. And when we go back to the laboratory, you should be able to get a really good look at how many eggs are contained uh, within this one fish. So this is exactly the stage that we're looking for. The eggs are key. Pinckney and scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey and the Maryland Department of Natural Resources are trying to figure out why yellow perch egg hatching success has dropped from 80 percent in the 1950s to less than 10 percent in the past decade. And that's despite decades of bans on both commercial and recreational yellow perch fishing in many local rivers. So the two rivers that are doing really poorly are the Severn and South Rivers right near Annapolis. The team is under a bit of a time crunch. Yellow perch only spawn for three to five days each spring, and water temperature can affect when and how fast everything happens. The scientists would like to collect 20 fish, 10 females and 10 males. But on this morning, they only get five fish, all female. Three of the five have already ejected their eggs. Pinckney says that isn't necessarily a bad omen for this year's hatch. It's just a bit frustrating. It's mostly luck of the draw. It's just, it's tricky with temperature and, you know, we had the warm weekend and then it got cool and it rained and it's just hard to figure out what's going on. The team decides to reset the nets and come back in a few days, but they'll bring the five fish back to the lab to collect egg and tissue samples. This guy's dead now. I think he's ready. She, whichever. Vicki Blazer is a fish pathologist for the U.S. Geological Survey. She and her colleague, USGS biologist Luke Iwanowitz, are waiting for the yellow perch back at the Fish and Wildlife Laboratory. This right here is the spleen. So fish have spleens just like we do. They'll take samples of the kidney, liver, brain, and reproductive organs, and the tissue will be examined at the molecular level for abnormalities. The team will pair that data with water chemistry results from the past year and hopefully get a clearer picture of why yellow perch are losing their ability to reproduce. The scientists would also like to test the tissue samples for chemical abnormalities, but there's just one problem. We currently do not have funding to look at the contaminant analysis, so they'll go in the freezer (laughs) and we'll hope for the best. Blazer does have theories about what contaminants they'll find in the yellow perch tissue whenever that analysis is done. She says she expects to see classic legacy contaminants like PCBs and mercury or the banned pesticide DDT. But she also thinks they might find evidence of contaminants that have popped up on the environmental radar more recently. We haven't thought that much about the hormones that all of us excrete or that are used in things like birth control or hormone replacement therapy. 
all the pharmaceuticals that people are taking now that are getting into the aquatic environment and also into fish. It's also possible that a single contaminant isn't to blame. Environmental scientists around the Bay have spent the past decade studying the level of urbanization around local Chesapeake tributaries and how it coincides with certain fish populations. There's mounting evidence that once urbanization reaches a certain level, just 10 percent pavement versus natural soil, the drainage and chemistry changes to adjacent waterways are too much for fish to handle. Fred Pinckney says, unfortunately, the yellow perch reproduction problems are likely connected to what's happening or what could soon happen to other types of fish. Perch is an indicator of the level of development within a watershed. And so other fish species tend to track along um, in terms of numbers when the perch go down. The scientists will find out about the water chemistry results in the next few months, but that contaminant analysis, which could help solve the mystery of the yellow perch once and for all, will have to wait for funding. Luckily, the tissue samples can last for years in the freezer, and Vicki Blazer says with the current federal budget situation, they may have to. I'm Jonathan Wilson. You can learn more about the yellow perch study and see pictures of the fish on our website, metroconnection.org. For many colleges and universities in the D.C. region, springtime, of course, means spring break. But even though school is out, a lot is happening in the world of higher education, from budget crunches to an upcoming Supreme Court decision on affirmative action and admissions policies. Kavita Cardoza recently spoke with Scott Jassick, editor of the website Inside Higher Ed, about the big changes coming for colleges and how these changes may affect students, staffers, and professors here in the D.C. region and around the country. Everyone's expecting a decision soon on the affirmative action case in front of the Supreme Court. It's a huge issue. It's 10 years since the Supreme Court last took up the issue of affirmative action in higher education. And there is a chance that they could bar colleges from considering race and ethnicity in admissions. Just about every college association has filed briefs asking the court not to do so. But many other groups and individuals want the court to ban affirmative action. The case comes out of the University of Texas, but it could affect all of higher education, depending on what the judges do. The reality is there are some colleges and universities, the elites, where they use affirmative action very heavily in admissions. So for them, it would affect who gets in. Many other colleges and universities that may not have competitive admissions do use consideration of race and ethnicity in awarding financial aid, in uh, special summer programs to recruit students, all kinds of outreach efforts. Even community colleges, for instance, many community college graduates uh, who are more likely than others to be minorities benefit from affirmative action in transferring to four-year institutions. Do we have any idea on how it might go? If you look at the questions that were asked during the oral arguments, it didn't look good for affirmative action. I could count only three justices whose questions suggested support for affirmative action. A lot of universities have signed on to the massive open online courses or MOOCs. Anyone can take these courses, they're free, but they're usually not for credit classes. And I know many university officials are excited about being able to reach millions more students, but they're also keen to figure out how to make money off MOOCs. Very quickly, there's been a push to award credit 
for MOOCs because they've been very popular. As you said, hundreds of thousands of students per class. So the universities are looking ways to uh, award credit and to get paid in, in the process. Now, there's some concerns, though, because if you look at online education generally, not all students are as likely to be successful as others. Generally, very experienced students, uh, highly disciplined students, well-prepared students, they tend to do well online. Students who are, say, first generation of college, who are at risk to dropping out, who haven't established good study patterns, they are less likely to do well online. So there is concern that by relying on MOOCs or large online courses generally to provide too much of an education for not well-prepared students, that they could end up hurting the students. And maybe we're going to figure out interesting ways so that MOOCs can help a broad range of students. I'm not sure we're there yet. At least once a day, I get a press release about someone promoting STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and math education. And this has been a big emphasis of the Obama administration. What are universities trying to do to promote STEM education? They're trying to do everything they can. Uh, One of the things that colleges and universities are trying to do is to get the message down to the grade schools. Because if you don't take the pre-college track and stick with math, serious math, and science in high school, you basically can't all of a sudden decide you want to be a biologist as a freshman in college. You basically are closing doors to certain options early. Another thing they're trying to do is to improve science education. There's sort of a revolution going on right now in science education. Many people think the traditional lecture format is deadening and discourages people from science and takes away what's exciting about science. So there's a lot of effort right now to change those introductory courses so there's group work right away so that students are working on practical problems, not just memorizing formulas or equations, that that will engage students more and they'll see the excitement of science. One of the other issues in science is that there are severe gaps in who goes into science. The numbers are so striking that one college can make a huge difference. For instance, we reported this year that Clemson University has six African-American tenure-track professors in computer science. Now, you might not think that's a huge deal. That's 10% of all the African-American computer science professors in the United States. And what that means is that you don't have minority students going into fields that pay very well, that are crucial to the future of our economy. Many universities are relying on foreign talent for their math and science programs, and that can be a great thing. You build a global community. But because our immigration laws are such that currently, at least, a talented foreign graduate student who comes here is basically kicked out upon earning a PhD, they don't necessarily nurture the U.S. economy the way many people would like to see our talented STEM graduates do. That was Scott Jasek of Inside Higher Ed speaking with WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza. Up next, expanding DC's world of yoga. The message that I'm sending out is not about, I'm just black, you're black, let's practice yoga. It's about, I understand being discriminated against. I understand someone judging your body. I know what that feels like. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. 
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're celebrating the coming season with a show we are calling Spring Fling. In just a bit, we'll feel the burn as we swing by Anacostia for some spring training. And now that we've sprung forward for daylight saving time, we'll meet the Washingtonian whom you could refer to as Father Time. But before we get to all that, we're going to head to Glen Echo, Maryland, a.k.a. Jamaica. One love, one heart, let's get together and feel all right. This song you're hearing may sound awfully familiar, as might this one. And this one. Play us some music, this reggae music. Play us some music, this reggae music. These three tunes by legendary reggae artist Bob Marley are among many you'll hear in Three Little Birds, the world premiere musical opening this weekend at Adventure Theater Musical Theater Center. The show is written and choreographed by the theater's artistic director, Michael Bobbitt. A friend of the theater knew Sadella Marley's manager. Sadella Marley is Bob Marley's daughter. And suggested that we reach out to her because Sadella has written a children's book called Three Little Birds. And after brainstorming a little bit, I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could infuse the musical with Bob Marley's music? The book tells the story of Ziggy, a shy boy who's more than happy to just stay at home and watch TV, until his trickster friend Nancy convinces him to embark on a daring adventure across the island. Before adapting the book for the stage, Michael Bobbitt had to secure the rights for Bob Marley's musical repertoire. And actually, that task, he says, wasn't too challenging. But two things were... One, I had to sort of comb through the catalog and figure out what songs were appropriate for children's theater. And two, I had to create a story and figure out how the songs play in the story. In the end, though, Bobbitt says both undertakings came surprisingly easy, especially the second. We were staging the finale, and I'm like, it's almost like he wrote this song for this play, but it wasn't. It was written just to be a song. Can you tell us what that song is? It is called Smile Jamaica. And it just starts with celebrating Jamaica and what Jamaica is, which is basically the essence of the play. So what is it like directing a piece that is so, like, entrenched in Jamaican culture? Not only is the set going to reflect that, but the costumes, the dialect. Yeah, well, thank goodness we had a wonderful, wonderful dialect coach helping us on this. Nick Olcott is the show's director. So he really brought the flavor of the islands to it. And the set designer and the costume designer had to do a lot of research into the colors and the looks of Jamaica. Among the most stunning costumes in the show are those of the title characters. So where do the three little birds come in? Well, that's from Bob Marley's song, Three Little Birds, who come to deliver the message that everything's going to be all right. Don't you worry about a thing, because every little thing's going to be all right. Olcott confesses that when Michael Bobbitt first approached him about directing the play... I thought, a children's musical using Bob Marley music? Are you out of your mind? But like Bobbitt, Olcott soon found the combination was a match made in musical theater heaven. Children's musical theater heaven, to be exact. 
And I talk to friends of mine who have young kids, and they say it makes perfect sense. Kids love reggae music. The beat is just infectious. So everyone who likes reggae music is going to want to see this show because they're beautiful arrangements, you know, in six-part harmony. Louis Feimster is among the actors who get to belt out this six-part harmony. And he says, sure, Bob Marley's songs are bound to get everyone in the audience bopping. But not just because they're catchy. They also have these timeless messages of hope, liberation, and love. I mean, if you look around D.C. now, people have changed some of the one-way signs to one love. So, like, there's still that kind of, like, spirit that Bob Marley is able to just kind of bring out in people. Adventure Theater Artistic Director Michael Bobbitt says that spirit is a prime reason he decided to make Three Little Birds the third show in the theater's African-American adventure series, highlighting African-American culture. I really started looking through the canon of works that exist in the children's theater genre for books that celebrate the culture, where race is not a plot point. And so this idea of Three Little Birds came up, and even though Jamaica is not an American province. Certainly Bob Marley and reggae has influenced a lot of African-American culture. In fact, they've influenced many cultures. And Michael Bobbitt hopes this brand new musical will influence Washingtonians to head to Glen Echo and know that, at least while they're sitting in that darkened theater, every little thing is truly going to be all right. Three Little Birds opens this weekend at Adventure Theater Musical Theater Center. You can see photos of the characters and learn more about the play as well as Sadala Marley's book on our website, metroconnection.org. So spring is often seen as a time of renewal, right? Not just in nature, but in our homes. Think spring cleaning. And in our bodies. Think spring training. You'll see a bunch of Washingtonians out and about these days, all walking and jogging and biking to get and stay fit. You'll also see a bunch of them shedding their shoes and unrolling their mats to engage in a little bit of yoga. Thing is, though, the geography of yoga in this region, if you will, is sort of kind of limited. But as Jacob Fenston tells us, local yogis are working to change that. If you Google Yoga Studio Washington, D.C., the pins drop in clusters across the city's posh neighborhoods. Can you guys in the back come up to the front? But here, east of the Anacostia River, yoga studios are non-existent. So these yogis are gathered in a church, mats laid out on the linoleum tiles. The class, as usual, is packed. Take a deep inhale through the nose and just kind of bring yourself into class. Sarian Lee has been teaching yoga in Southeast D.C. since 2005 under the name Anacostia Yogi. Strong inhales. Back then, she says she was the only teacher east of the river, and still, she's one of just a handful holding regular classes here. Releasing exhales. While yoga's popularity has been growing across the country for the past two decades, it's still a relatively narrow slice of the population that practices. Seven in ten yogis have higher ed degrees. Three-quarters are white. It's according to recent studies by Yoga Journal. Inhaling new beginnings. 
But in this yoga class, I am the only white student. It's the first time in my 10 years of practicing I've ever been the minority in a yoga class. I have always been in a situation where I've been the minority. Lee says growing up, going to college, going to grad school, she was used to sometimes being the only black woman in the room. So for me, the the interesting thing wasn't being a minority. It was how I felt in a yoga space. When she started going to yoga classes in Northwest D.C., she expected to feel welcomed, warm and fuzzy. But that's not how she felt. I've had some very uncomfortable experiences in yoga studios where I couldn't believe that this was a healing space, a sacred space, but I could feel and sense and even hear comments from people that were, to me, racist. So she started teaching classes in Southeast, where she lived. The message that I'm sending out to people is not about, I'm black, you're black, let's practice yoga. It's about, I understand being discriminated against. I understand someone judging your body. I know what that feels like, so I can help unpeel that. I can help undo it. Part of the yoga disparity is, of course, related to wealth and poverty. More white people, more people in Northwest D.C. have more disposable income to spend on things like yoga. But that's just part of the story. Dana Smith runs a studio in Upper Marlboro, where 98% of her students are black. There are very wealthy people here. They just, they don't know how yoga can be relevant, and that's where I come in. She opened the studio back in 2003 because when she tried to get friends and family to go to yoga, they wouldn't do it. A lot of them look at things like Yoga Journal, and they look at the studios in D.C., and they don't see representation. These days, Smith has a steady business going, and she's looking to expand the studio. But she says she still has to dispel myths people have about yoga. They think that yoga is a religion, that if they are Christian, that they have to lose a part of that in order to practice yoga. And I tell them, no, that's not true. Yoga is a health system. It works with whatever you believe in. Yoga comes from a Sanskrit word that means to unite. But that's not always what happens when a yoga studio opens up in a divided neighborhood. I know it looks bad sometimes for us to pop up in a neighborhood, that it might be a sign of things changing. Jasmine Chirazi is the founder of Yoga District, which runs four studios in Northwest and one on H Street Northeast. But I'm really hoping that instead it's a symbol of integration, that We can all do this practice. Three of the Yoga District studios opened in neighborhoods that were in transition, but at early stages of that transition. For example, when a studio opened in Bloomingdale in 2009, it was still a rough area where staff would get robbed after class. Now it's a totally different place. We definitely probably were part of that change. I read Craigslist ads for apartments in Bloomingdale where they say... One block from the Yoga District studio, one bedroom for $1,800. Chirazi tries to make her studios as inclusive as possible. And initially, she was very idealistic about bringing people together, rich and poor, black and white, through yoga. In Bloomingdale, she tried to get the guys who hung out in front of the corner store to come to class. You know, I was like, come on, guys, come on, come on. You know, it's $10 or less. Like, nobody turned away for lack of funds. Just come, please come. They're like, no, 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 they wouldn't come. Since then, Chirazi's decided that if people won't come to her, she'll go to them, doing yoga outreach and free classes all over the city. Meanwhile, back in Southeast, Sarian Lee is finishing up class. In the front row, Saeed Chestnut is rolling up a baby blue yoga mat. He's been practicing for about two years, and he says... It actually doesn't really matter if the teacher looks like you or who's on the mat next to you or what your friends think. First thing you get is, oh, you just go for the girls and that sort of thing. 
And I, I tell them, you know, really, you once you really get into the class and really get focused, you forget about who's in the room. I'm Jacob Fenston. nearly a week since we officially sprang forward and moved our clocks ahead an hour. And that's made us here at Metro Connection think a lot about time and how we keep track of it. Well, turns out one of the people tasked with that very job lives and works right here in D.C. Demetrius Mitsakis heads the Time Service Department at the U.S. Naval Observatory. Jocelyn Frank recently met up with Mitsakis for this month's edition of D.C. Gigs, and she found out that to keep time from running away, the Time Service Department is locked up pretty tight. Now we're entering through one double locked door. And now if you look inside through this glass, you see what looks like a giant water heater. The parts cost about $600,000 for this clock. They consist of lasers. The technology behind it was the subject of maybe four or five Nobel Prizes. It's a rubidium fountain. Atoms inside are treated just like a water fountain. They are shot up and they come down. They fall down, sprinkle down. And on the way, they are interrogated to get their time. One of these can measure time, frequency, to 16 decimal points. Therefore, you are now looking at the most precise operational instrument measurement system ever built by mankind. My name is Demetrius Mitsakis. Some people call me Father Time. Other people say I'm one of the Time Lords, which would be uh, all the people around the world that do this. But my official title is Department Head of the Time Service Department at the Naval Observatory. And that's what I put down on my forms. I have no business cards. U.S. Naval Observatory Master Clock at the tone Eastern Standard Time, 16 hours, 23 minutes, 30 seconds. Universal Time, 21 hours, 23 minutes, 35 seconds. Here we maintain about 100 atomic clocks, and we use those clocks to measure the time. I don't wear a watch. I never have worn a watch. I consider myself very punctual, but other people might not think so. There's a term called fashionably late, and sometimes that's appropriate. We're now entering in the chamber. Okay, this temperature is a little high for humans in here. This is a maser that generates a signal that it thinks it's 5 megahertz, and some people think that's a master clock, but when it gets fed into the auxiliary output generator, it gets shifted by a little bit, to generate five megahertz, so other people think that's a master clock. They, they get the output of another box, which generates one pulse per second, and other people think that's a master clock. But really the master clock is everything together, including the humans and the security guards that protect us and the taxpayers that fund us. So I guess we are all on edge. Equipment breaks, that's why we have redundant equipment so there's always something going. The master clock itself, the components that I showed you, have failed. They failed three times since I've been director. 
Two of the times I was on an airplane waiting to take off, and the other time I was on my way to my son's marriage. People went and they dealt with it. I think of this movie, I think it was called Ted and Somebody's Excellent Adventure, where they're wandering around time, and first when they're wandering, they see themselves in the f coming back from the future, and those coming back from the future project great confidence, which inspires them, the original people, to continue. And so here we are, struggling to understand what science is about, what the world's going. We can project great confidence to the world, but really we're just all struggling along, trying to figure out what's going on. That was Demetrius Mitsakis of the U.S. Naval Observatory's Time Service Department, speaking with reporter Jocelyn Frank. If you have a distinctively D.C. gig you think we should feature on the show, let us know. Send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Kavitha Cardoza, along with reporter Jocelyn Frank. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, that's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when we'll dive into the world of design. We'll check out the plans for a new monument to D.C.'s godfather of go-go. We'll learn about Elizabeth Keckley, a former slave who not only designed dresses for Mary Todd Lincoln, but designed ways for freed slaves and wounded Civil War soldiers to have a better life. Plus, we'll chronicle the rise of a certain structure you'll find all over Washington's urban landscape. There's some that move up and down. There's some that move to the side to side. There's some that have lights. There's some that don't have lights. And then there's some that are just immovable. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.